Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I have a question, guys. Yes. Which of us would get furloughed as non-essential mm. uh, if somebody were ever to shut, have a rational security shut down and only the ones who were essential had to show up? Well, Shane is essential. I don't know if any of the rest yeah, of us are essential. Like solo podcast. <laughs> but nobody likes filling in when I'm gone. No, actually, I I have demonstrated that I suck at filling in when you're gone. So Great. you are essential. All right, so I'm essential. All right, but so I don't that's, get that's paid. That's gonna be just. Gonna be <laughs> just you get paid anyway. Just talking. What's that? It could be just you, just talking. Oh, I'm sure people would love to download that. <laughs> Shane rants. Me in the shower. Oh, I would, the Shane actually, show. I wouldn't mind a rant show. Tbh, I wouldn't mind it. That was to be honest. I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it took me a sec, but I, di- I did figure it out. That's why I'm not essential, see, because I don't understand. Well, you're not essential. the cool lingo. Not yeah. essential. Like, wait, there has to be another, char- another way to characterize besides non-essential. Furloughed. Furloughed. Really expendable. <laughs> really expendable. <laughs> DC is like sort of a ghost town right now. Yeah. You, won't, you won't miss me when I'm gone. Yeah. It's do you work here status? <laughs> you work here status? Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the No One's Shutting Us Down edition. I'm Shane Harris. Harris? Did I say Harris? He just mispronounced his own name. (laughs) My God, I'm not essential. He is drinking a little bit right now. (laughs) Shane Harris. (laughs) (laughs) Very pleased to be on your poop cast. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to end up like that weather caster in upstate New York. (laughs) Wait, who is this? Who is this? Yeah. Oh, okay. We could go all day. Go on YouTube. Back a lunch. Uh, I'm here. I, I obviously am not shut down. Surprising, you know. We're we, although it's not as busy in the newsroom as a normal weekday. I feel like I, I really do think that this is like these are the ways that you feel it. Like the roads are. It's a emptier. conspiracy. Yeah, you do feel it. It's like things slow down. They actually they don't want people in the government answering phones when reporters call them. I mean, unless it's about the border. What's weird about this, Rory? Well, what's weird about this shutdown, though, too, is it's not affecting all agencies. So, yeah. for instance, on my beat, nothing is shut down because the Intel community is was funded in the last uh, appropriations go around. So, it's only affecting like certain places, which is interesting. I have a friend who actually has been, uh, she's an essential worker who has to go without pay, and she's taken to calling it on Facebook the shit down. Yeah. She's I can... been. Uh, <laughs> I do have Vocally a friend who works, works at an unnamed federal agency who says that his boss has been showing up in sweatpants. It's like a nice. small act of rebellion. Like, I'm here, but I'm wearing sweatpants. This is actually, I, I think this is a trend because I've heard of this elsewhere. People coming to work in jeans or sweatpants to protest having to work without getting paid. That'll oh. show them. <laughs> the lack of decorum. Uh, well, we are here in the Jungle Studio. Me, Ben Wittes, tomorrow Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hey. hey. All of our names. Correctly. I did. <laughs> Make sure to write them down. That's Ben with an E. Um, and if you are furloughed, 
you're still essential to us. So we're very glad that you're here Even with us. Even if you're today. wearing sweatpants. Even if you're wearing sweatpants. Uh, we'll try and make it an extra special episode for you today. On the podcast, President Trump takes his pitch for border security to the American people in an Oval Office address. John Bolton and Mike Pompeo are on the road doing high-stakes diplomacy, but do they actually speak for the president? And the latest in La Faire Russe, a Russian lawyer, gets indicted, and Paul Manafort was sharing polling data with his Russian brain. So let's start with uh, the president, and he had his very first Oval Office address last night uh, at 9 o'clock. And I got to say, it seems like the general reaction is it was a big dud. Um, he didn't really say anything new. Mike Pompeo actually was asked about it while he was in Jordan and said, oh, he's going to make a lot of news. There was really not much news. There were a lot of numbers. There were many, a lot of numbers. Many, many numbers <clears throat> that were meant to appear connected to one another, but in fact are not. Right, right. I mean, the one speculation I've heard that I do sort of buy is that the intention was to dramatically declare a national emergency. He was talked out of that, but then still had to give the address. And oh, so that's we, interesting. what we ended up with was sort of a, you know, crabby stayed rally speech essentially in other words like he was preparing to go right up to the line and then just right like that the intention of like calling this prime time national Mm -hmm. address he was going to do this dramatic thing they decided not to do the dramatic thing but he couldn't back out of the prime time so he had to do something we we wound up with that and the the form of the prime time address really disfavors trump I, i mean i find his speaking style so repellent under any circumstances but objectively it is effective with a very large number of people in that setting in which he kind of vamps off of an energy of a crowd. And actually, he does use the crowd a lot. And if you have him alone in the Oval Office with a camera pointed to him, kind of reading a script or even, you know, improvising a little bit off of a script, he's got no audience cues to take. And he's really bad at that. Well, and the you know, reading that, that... was even not great. He was, you could tell he was, he was sort of putting pauses in the wrong place. I but think he sort of always... say, I'm as speaking to you, it sounded like he said. Whenever he speaks off a script, that's how he sounds. Yeah. It's a dramatic, dramatic difference. But I actually think in this case, it was somewhat deliberate. There was a stark contrast between the scaremongering of the substance of the words and the stayed delivery. And I think that that was a deliberate choice to try to get him to seem sober and, you know, taking the responsibility of the office. It was trying to invest him with greater credibility uh, than if he were yelling at a rally. Um, because his, you know, his message all the way along yelling at rallies is don't take me seriously. I'm just being outrageous. Isn't this fun? And you can't declare a national emergency, whether it legally or just informally rhetorically in that don't take me seriously manner. So I'm not persuaded this was the result of pulling back from going over the cliff of a national emergency. I, I think it was effectively here's my last-ditch attempt to keep Republican members of Congress on side by so scaring their base that their base is going to flood them with calls saying, don't let the Democrats open the government without a wall. And basically, that was his pitch at the end. He said, call your congressman. I was listening to that thinking, when was the last time an American president sitting in the Oval Office told the American people, Call your congressman. Here here I am. I'm a hostage in the Oval Office to these mean Democrats 
go get them off my back. It was bizarre. I actually, I, I think that's plausible. And if it is true, I wonder if we won't see it pretty immediately backfire, which is that he's now played this hand. If there is no perceptible shift in public opinion, then is he forced to capitulate because the Republicans sort of realize, you know, there there's no graceful out here. We've just got to kind of capitulate and, and, and reopen it. And there were times where I was listening to him and it seemed like he was giving a speech that he thought was mostly going to be watched by people who hadn't been following the debate. So it kind of it was it was a bit broad in the beginning, and then it got into specifics that it got into were these really visceral examples of people being murdered and raped and beheaded and all that. And he was just covering so much of the same ground that I found myself wondering: Is this actually an, a speech for someone other than the audience in Washington to try and make his demands so far seem reasonable? And and I, and, and if, if that was the case, I'm not sure how well that's going to come over because I don't think that this is something that the American people have been ignoring. Uh, it's not like they're unaware the government has been shut down, which then was surprising that he didn't go to some of the places he's been going, like terrorists are coming across the border. Now, that was a statistic uh, and an assertion that got pretty wildly shot down this week, and even the White House backed off of it. But, you know, Ben, I didn't see him going to a lot of the old tropes that he sort of has been you know, touching base with over the past couple of weeks uh, as even, we enter the even, 18th day of the shutdown. Yeah, just a mild, mild reference to MS-13, which had been one of his go-tos on border security. Right, right. It sort of seemed like a surface-level argument that he wasn't terribly passionate about. Yeah, it was entirely unclear to me what the strategic purpose of it was, whether it was, as Tammy says, in order to you know, scare bases to shore up Republican senators, or whether, as Susan said, it was actually a sort of bait and switch from an earlier, you know, sort of dealing with the fact that they weren't ready to announce if they were going to be ready to announce this uh, state of emergency. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of saw it as a big sort of floundering exercise. And I do think the battle right now is a battle for 15 or so Senate Republicans. And, you know, the question is, is the pressure on them over the next couple of weeks such that the dam gives way and the Republicans are prepared to pass something perhaps over the president's veto? Or is what happens that that group of people holds firm in which case the pressure on the Democrats to buckle and include some and have some kind of compromise that involves some money for, you know, whatever you however you want to describe it, a physical barrier will become pretty overwhelming, I think, if if the Republicans are really going to prepared to be completely nihilistic about it. I mean, one thing I do wonder, you know, the White House is still appears to be holding open this possibility of declaring a national emergency uh, as a way that Trump can build the wall without congressional authorization, essentially. Uh, the, I, I do wonder if they aren't still thinking about this as kind of the only graceful exit for him. Um, and that's because so if he declares a national emergency and it's invalidated by a judge or some external, you know, actor makes it so that he can't 
he can't actually, you know, build the wall under under these authorities or the authorities are more limited, of course, than he's representing right now. He can still turn to the base and say, look, I'm fighting for the wall. It's these other things that are constraining me. And so, you know, as we've seen him do it in, in other cases. The that, travel ban. And, exactly. Yeah. By sort of by invoking this national emergency you know, whatever, whether it works or not, the sort of winning on it is is beside the point. You know, that is that's the exit that he needs with the base. So I I actually think it would not be a terrible outcome for Democrats either. So in that case, they don't have to appropriate anything, right? So they don't have to give in. You could, if, if he were to invoke the national emergency and do that reprogramming, then Mitch McConnell could say, well, okay, since he's doing that, we can pass, you know, a, a clean uh, sort of omnibus for the remaining minibus or whatever they're calling it. Uh, and then you kind of agree to fight about the legitimacy of that in the context of a litigation. The stakes are relatively low because you know, contrary to what the phrase declaring a national emergency means, it's not like, you know, the president makes a declaration and all of a sudden civil liberties are suspended or there's martial law, right? All it allows him to do is reprogram some DOD building money from one fund to another. And so I actually wonder, I I certainly don't favor the abuse of the National Emergencies Act and the use of it for purposes that, you know, are transparently not a national emergency. But I do think that if the president were to do that, it might actually provide a basis to reopen the government without actually anybody having to back down off their positions. What if, though, I mean, I'm just spitballing this, and maybe you'll say this isn't a likely outcome. The president declares a national emergency. If someone immediately sues to try and block it, and he says, okay, well, that's being held up, and I'm still not willing to sign legislation that doesn't have funding for the wall because I'm getting it one way or the other. Either I'm getting it through an emergency or I'm getting it through a continuing resolution or an appropriations bill. And then we still have a shutdown and there's this litigation, which, I mean, how long could the litigation conceivably take? Days, Years. Weeks? Years. Okay. Well, the government can't be shut down for years. Right. So so, so I think- well, Or I, it could actually. He said he might want to do that. But. I, I mean, I think that wouldn't work because for, for exactly that reason. You know, there's, no, there's only three ways this can end, right? One is Democrats buckle and appropriate some money for a wall. The second is Trump buckles and allows Congress to- agrees to sign legislation that would open the government without funding for a wall. And the third is some kind of face-saving compromise where you either redefine what a wall is or you, you know, you call it border security and, you know, you, you can you can you can fudge that in a number of ways. But this is one version of that. It's just that it's a version that kicks the question of the legitimacy of the president's action to the courts. So I don't disagree with that, with any of that, except for the part where you say, I don't think it would be a bad outcome for the Democrats. I actually do think it would be a really bad thing for the president to declare a national emergency in a case in which there is transparently not a national emergency and for Congress to do nothing. Now, you know, I I know people sort of feel like the, uh, you know, authoritarianism of it is being overstated, but I think that that understates it a little bit. I actually think that that is a pretty grievous abuse of the statutory but but statutory discretion that Congress is giving to the White House. And I think that if the president gets away with looking at them saying, I'm going to abuse this, 
I know I'm abusing it. You know I'm abusing it. And you're not going to do anything about it. I do think that gets us a step closer to the the even further erosion of the notion of there being two co-equal branches of government. Okay, so let, let me push you on this because I think this is an interesting question. So if you were Nancy Pelosi and you've just hired your new counsel for the House of Representatives, Doug Letter, and this is on the table, the president kind of calls you up and says, Nancy, I'm going to... Uh, sign the bill that you want with no appropriation for this, but I'm going to declare an, a national emergency. And you call in Doug Letter, and Doug Letter says, very high percent chance a court enjoins this and he can't get away with it. So if you let him do this, there is some chance that he will prevail. And then what you've described is the outcome. But there's also a, a, a significant chance that the president's policy does not survive judicial review, and you've ended up with with essentially total victory. What's more, you can immediately, now you're in control of the House, you can immediately insert a rider into any bill saying you may spend no money on the wall into any future legislation. So you live to fight another day and the government is open again. Can can I just add one dimension here, which is that whether or not it's good for the Democrats in a tactical sense or a political sense or um, even in a policy sense, I do think there's an additional price that we pay as a democratic system and a democratic society, which is that ultimately the question of whether a president can legitimately use this national emergency declaration to overcome congressional opposition to his desire to spend money on something, that's going to get resolved in the courts. In other words, a standoff that is fundamentally political um, because it's opposite parties, but also because there is a political disagreement over a policy issue amongst these parties, it's going to get resolved in the courts. I don't think that's healthy. (laughs) Um, I think that one problem with the pattern that you're, I, Susan, I think you're absolutely right to point out that Trump follows again and again, which is to sort of declare something that he knows is not going to hold up legally and claim that he's off the hook when he's not, you know, when the legal forces intervene to constrain him. One consequence of that is that there's a chunk of the American public that wants him to fulfill his campaign promises, who then get angry at the courts because they're getting in his way. And what we see in other populist governance contexts is that populist leaders then use that not just to attack and delegitimize the courts rhetorically, but to go after the courts through regulation and law. From a democratic perspective, that is a dangerous road to go down. So I'm I'm not comfortable with it, even if it if the declaration of a national emergency itself is not such a threat to democracy, it takes us further down a path that is not healthy for our democracy. I also think the premise of the question stacks the deck a little bit by sort of saying, all right, Trump Trump invokes a national emergency in a way that clearly isn't going to withstand scrutiny. So let's imagine sort of the narrowest uh, you know, way that he might do this. Still still illegitimate, but narrowest. He uh, he invokes the provision that allows him to uh, reappropriate $500 million of DOD funding uh, in order to build a wall on DOD property. Some people have sort of speculated he might do that and go home and declare it 
victory. The the emergency powers is supposed to be if there's a true national emergency or to def- or, or for the safety of the troops. Those are the conditions. Those conditions aren't met. I actually think, though, because a court would be so likely to defer to the president on what safety of the troops meant, what a national emergency meant in that context, that he actually would win. Now, it's only $500 million. It's $500 million of uncommitted funds moving to something else. But that would be the president essentially reappropriating funding in in what should be a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act, really reaching out into sort of the appropriations power of Congress in a way that I, I, I do think it's an area in which if I was the Speaker of the House, I would want to stand firm in a way that really clarified for the American people that this wasn't politics as usual. This is somebody who, whenever they couldn't get their way within the constitutional structure that we've organized, decided that they were basically going to break the rules. Well, speaking of two employees who are definitely essential and have to go to work, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, and Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State. But is his mustache essential? Oh, definitely not. So inessential. Definitely not. It's been furloughed since he took the job. It nearly cost him the job. (laughs) You know? That poor mustache. Um, so, Pompeo. Before we get into substance, can we please talk about the report that Trump keeps? Are you going to go there now? Okay. Mike Bolton. <laughs> I can't wait. We, we got to put it up front. But so what I want to know, what I want to know, is whether when the president refers to his national security advisor, I'm sure with love, as Michael Bolton, does he then sing to him? <laughs> and what would he sing, Tammy? <laughs> Wow. Somehow I don't think that John Bolton sounds remotely like that when he sings. <laughs> no, although thinking, you don't of, know. thinking of that voice coming out uh, from a mouth surrounded by that 70s porn star mustache, though, is is kind of precious. It somehow kind of works. Yeah. Anyway, back to normal programming. Um, so, Tammy, Bolton and Pompeo were out on the road uh, doing a lot of diplomacy, Pompeo is visiting like many countries, like eight countries, I think. nine countries. Nine. One of my co- my colleagues is chasing him all around the globe this week, John Hudson. So he's out there for a week. Uh, Bolton has been in Israel. He was in Turkey, where we had some uh, interesting photographs taken of conversations that he was having with the Turkish officials. We can talk about, but set the stakes here for both what they're doing out there, but also, I mean, they're, they're doing this against a backdrop of a president that is, I think, even more than usual, uh, undercutting the, not just his, his, his own advisors and cabinet secretaries, but he keeps waffling on his own positions. I mean, are we pulling out of Syria? Are we not pulling out of Syria? So, I mean, talk about this kind of this, this very topsy-turvy moment that they're going out there where they have to speak on behalf of the United States, and it's not clear that anyone is reading from the same script. Yeah, I mean, you almost, almost feel a little drop of sympathy for these senior officials who, you know, they're 10,000 miles away from home. There's a big time difference. President does get his beauty rest every night. And, you know, how can they be sure (laughs) that they are actually acting on instructions? How do they stay linked up as they're engaging in all of this international diplomacy? You can feel a drop of sympathy until you realize that 
all their staff and all the control officers at all these embassies, that's 11 embassies around the region, only I think six of which even have ambassadors, but all those staffers staffing these trips are going unpaid, okay? Nonetheless, I think it is good and important for senior officials from the Trump administration to be out in the Middle East talking to important regional partners about American policy and trying to close the gap in understanding and and hopefully coordinate a strategy that allows the president to do what he thinks is important, which is withdraw American forces from Syria while simultaneously protecting our security interests and the interests of our partners. I don't know if you can square that circle, but it's good that they're out there trying. I think one huge problem they've had is that the president keeps stomping on what they're trying to do. So, you know, John Bolton goes first to Israel where it was quite clear that the Israeli government was both surprised and extremely displeased by the president's sudden Twitter announcement of his intent to withdraw American forces from Syria. Um, They made that pretty plain. So he's, you know, Bolton's on a reassurance mission. He's trying to say, well, this isn't, we don't have a timeline. It's going to be conditions-based. We have to make sure we defeat ISIS first. We want to make sure Turkey plays nice. And the president footstomps and says, no, I said, we're leaving, we're leaving. You know, okay, fine, we'll do it in an orderly way. But, you know, so right away, Bolton is in a position where his own credibility is undermined, just as he has to go to Ankara and have a very, very difficult set of conversations with the Turks, which I assume were something along the lines of, I know the president said he'd be happy to have you solve this problem for us, but we really can't let you massacre our Kurdish partners in Syria. He was Syria. just kidding. <laughs> you know, he about hasn't that thought part. about this that much, but <laughs> we have. <laughs> right. And you could see that Erdogan really didn't react well to that. And so then, you know, Bolton has barely left uh, his conversations in Ankara when Erdogan publishes an op-ed in the New York Times um, basically saying, here's what the president and I agreed. And Pompeo, in another regional capital in uh, in Iraq, sort of agrees with what Erdogan said. So Pompeo is now undercutting Bolton, and neither of them are on the same page as the president of the United States. And I think it's part of the challenge with this president who's so capricious and has no real process for making these national security decisions. These senior officials have two bad choices. They can either go out and talk and try to establish some coherence and some set of expectations for America's partners and and for the public about what the U.S. is doing with the risk that they might be cut off at the knees by the president or completely contradicted. Or they could just not say anything, you know, go have quiet meetings, not speak in public, not try to signal where we're headed and and try to stay on the same page with the president. But then they essentially put the United States in the position of letting the other country that they're meeting with define the agreement. And that's what Erdogan was doing. You know, I, I think we've seen this also with North Korea, where the U.S. government's been awfully, awfully quiet. And the North Koreans keep saying what they believe that we have been discussing and agreeing to. Same thing with the Chinese. Uh, We just had a set of trade talks in Beijing. The U.S. delegation, as far as I can tell, issued no public statement at all and let the Chinese characterize the meetings. But if you're a a senior diplomat, 
you know, why would you stick your neck out to try and characterize something? This is a question that I guess, and maybe this is too existential and too broad of a question, but like, why the hell are they putting up with this? I mean, who would want this job? What, I mean, is it really so great to be Secretary of State and National Security Advisor that you go out and look like a chump, you You know, and get dressed down by the Turkish foreign minister and, you know, the picture of you being yelled at is all over the internet? I mean, you get a plane. You get driven all over the place in fancy. Okay, you can get okay. Uber. You can get rent a jet. These guys, I mean, like, no, so no, seriously. No, don't un, don't. Is this just the aphrodisiac of power? Yes, no, I, absolutely. I, I actually don't don't think that's what it is. First of all, I would say that anyone who's been a senior diplomat working for any president knows that sometimes in order to get things done, you have to be willing to suck it up and take some public humiliation. So what happened to Bolton? with the Turks might have been a little on the extreme end, but that's that kind of stuff does happen. I mean, the Egyptians made John Kerry go through a metal detector just to humiliate him. Um, he, you know, Kerry was willing to go but through. this is the president humiliating him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like I said, it's a little extreme, but that is par, par for the course in international diplomacy. And you suck it up for the sake of getting things done. OK. And and demonstrating that you're not going away. I also think that each of these guys has their own policy bees in the bonnet that they really want to advance. And they still think, even though they're clearly not completely in sync with the president, they still think they can advance these agendas through him. And for John Bolton, that's an anti-Iran agenda. For Pompeo, it's also anti-Iran, but it's also Christians in the Middle East which he's talking about at every stop in a way that's a little weird. Today, he thanked the Jordanian government for protecting religious freedom. Jordan is like an avowedly multi-religious country, (laughs) and religious freedom has never been a major issue there. So it's just a strange thing to say, but Pompeo cares about it. So I don't think it's just ego. I think these guys think that they're serving a higher purpose. I do wonder, though, if, you know, for all sort of the the battle of messaging, if you are the leader of a foreign country or in a position of foreign country or, frankly, even, you know, the U.S. military, and you actually have to take concrete steps, right? You have to make decisions based on some assumption of what the agreement actually is, what is really going to happen if we do this. And you're surveying the land and you see statements from Erdogan and you see Bolton's comments and you see Trump's tweets and then you see the official White House statement and then you see Mike Pompeo's comment. As a matter of sort of strategy or logic, how do you begin to decide what to do? I think that is perhaps the core question for Pompeo's trip. And the rubber is going to meet the road on this when he gets to Riyadh. Because it's Saudi Arabia that has been the linchpin of the Trump administration's regional strategy, whether it's on Iran, whether it's on counter ISIS, Arab-Israeli peace process. You know, Trump's been holding up the Saudis as helping to compensate for the American withdrawal from eastern Syria by putting in money and maybe even coming up with some troops from wherever. So are the Saudis really going to be willing to take the political risks that they would need to take on Arab-Israeli peace, for example, uh, for uh, an administration that not only can't speak with one voice, they can't trust that the secretary of state who's in front of them speaks for the president, but also this administration couldn't even prevent its own Republican Senate 
from voting against them on Saudi Arabia. So, you know, I think the kingdom, I wouldn't be surprised if the visit to the kingdom is a little rougher than uh, than either side really wants it to be. Which is astonishing when you think about the fact that, like, we should be the ones doling out the rough stuff when, right now when it comes to the Saudis. Yeah, I no mean, kidding. The, the head of their country murdered a journalist. And when Erdogan writes an op-ed in the New York Times, who is he talking to? Right? Is this <laughs> is he talking to Trump? He's talking to the American people. This is, is my pet British peeve, allies. Okay? Like, this is like the third time he's published a New York Times op-ed, and he writes them all himself. <laughs> and he he sits there and scribbles them out longhand, and and slaves over every word. This is okay. So this is my like huge pet peeve about the ecosystem of foreign policy in Washington, which is that somehow there's this conspiracy between the New York Times op-ed page, all these PR companies that have contracts with foreign governments and these heads of state. And somehow the PR companies persuade the heads of state that they can achieve their goals by writing an op-ed for the New York Times. And somehow the New York Times keeps publishing them. And I, I'm mystified by this. Got to fill that news hole, man. <laughs> yeah, it's that like good, good. Content. But you know, but it's also there's there's something else in there. It's also like echoing the decision that networks had to make uh, on Tuesday night this week of whether to air the president's speech. Right? I mean, like if it had a oh, foreign, come on, Erdogan can give you, a speech any day he <clears throat> wants, and the New York Times can report on it. Why do they have to give their real estate I, on the op-ed page we, for? Unfiltered, uncontextified. We, I, well, I mean, I'm just saying it's a similar predicament. I asked the same thing about the networks. I mean, why did they decide to air a speech that they knew was going to be filled with falsehoods and misleading statements and some lies that they would have to fact check, right? And at the end of the day, they're like, because he's the president and he needs to. Okay, but this people. is someone else's president. Yeah, I get it, but like op ed pages, I mean, look, we should let ask him, the defrock let journalist him write, in the room. Let him write the op ed in Al Hurriet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I do think it raises a similar dilemma in that my gut is that sort of the strategy of publishing this piece is to try and lock Trump in with his sort of with his base, right? Yeah. To to shift the media media ecosystem, you know, even Fox News reads the New York Times op-ed and sort of try and create a narrative so that Trump feels like he can't move. That's the New York Times allowing their medium to sort of be used to achieve these political goals. It's it's part of it. And I, I think a similar thing occurred yesterday, although the fact that he didn't declare a national emergency undercuts it a little bit. But the notion of the president interrupting regularly scheduled programming, NCIS is supposed to be on, but instead a special message from the president. It's not just that that's the president communicating. It's that the format communicates to the American people, this is a national emergency. And you need to pay this attention. This is an right. exceptional yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and I actually think it was really a strategic error for the networks to basically say, well, we're going to give him we're going to give him this first chance, see if he acts reasonably, uh, and then we'll decide if we allow him to give sort of future addresses. You know, it, it, it was clear that they were, you know, this this isn't just about the president sort of speaking to the public. It's about him actually using the media that he claims to hate so much to gin up this false sense of emergency and, and mislead people. Yeah, I think I think you're onto something. It also, I mean, following that same logic, it suggests to me that maybe 
The Bolton trip was a cleanup trip, okay, with Israel and Turkey, but maybe this big nine-country tour by Mike Pompeo is itself, you know, more symbol than substance. It's just to say, hey, I got this, got a handle on it, we're doing diplomacy over here. Pompeo is scheduled to give this major speech at the American University in Cairo tomorrow, and I think it's fair to say that in the context of all the chaos and the lack of credibility of the Trump administration, both domestically and in the region, it almost doesn't matter what he says in the speech. I don't think anybody is going to take it seriously as a statement of American policy. America's respected again, Tammy. Oh, thanks. We're winning. Sure. We're winning. So much winning. Uh, well, speaking of Russian agents who mislead people, <laughs> Natalia Veselnitskaya. These are sharp segues today. Yeah, Buckle up. <laughs> Calm down and enjoy the ride. <laughs> you tuned in last week. You know what I'm talking about. Natalia Veselnitskaya, you remember her. She of the uh, I Come Bearing Dirt uh, from the Russian government in its effort to help your president or your father, Donald Trump, get elected president. Can I meet with you in your father's office? Uh, has been indicted not stemming from the Mueller probe but in a separate case which, Ben, give us the the – most precious of presses, the briefest of briefs on – because we could go down like 100 rabbit holes on the Prevazon case. But briefly, the case that she got tangled up in and then let's talk about the implications for the Russian So it's probe. actually really simple. But before I give that briefest of presses, I have to give a shout out to uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya's biggest podcasting fan for whom yesterday was a big day, Virginia Heffernan of the Slate podcast Trumpcast, went to Halloween – as Natalia Veselnitskaya and oh, and wow. I and and talked about it on the podcast. So I just think you know we should take the day of of or a moment uh, for Veselnitskaya's indictment to uh, wave hello to to Virginia and the folks at at Trumpcast. Uh, no, so this was a surprise, um, and it was actually a surprise for me. Even though a few weeks ago I was on a panel with one of the prosecutors in the Prevazon case whose, you know, justice uh, Veselnitskaya had obstructed. And uh, Jamie Nowaday, who actually I called on the Lawfare podcast yesterday to tell this story, told this remarkable story. And when I read this indictment, I was like, I know this story. This is the story that Jamie was was telling at, at that panel we were on. And so, did she say that Veselnitskaya was the person? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. It was, I mean, she laid out these facts and then the her old office, the Southern District, brings the criminal case uh, on exactly the facts that, that she described. So here's what happened. The Prevazon case is one of the cases that uh, resulted from the whistleblowing of Bill Browder using the uh, material that was uh, obtained by Sergei Magnitsky before the Russians murdered him. Uh, and the Southern District of New York used some of that information to uh, go after using civil asset forfeiture uh, suits, uh, some uh, some companies and their real estate holdings in New York. And in the course of doing that, uh, they filed what's called an MLAT, a Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty request with the Russians, which is basically if you have one country's litigation or prosecution needs evidence from another country. You submit an MLAT, the other country is supposed to give you under the terms of the treaty, give you the evidence that you want. The Russians come back 
and say, no, uh, we're not going to give you anything under this MLAT request because your case has no merit. And in fact, none of the companies you're prosecuting are guilty of anything, and you should help us go after Bill Browder instead. And so it really was a, a very aggressive, dramatic uh, response by the Russians that basically amounted to, we're not helping you with this case. Please help us instead oppress your whistleblower. The case percolated along for a while and eventually settled. And then MSNBC, from uh, getting the information from uh, a different Russian dissident, Khodorkovsky, got these emails from Veselnitskaya, who was the lawyer for Prevazon in, in this case, with the state prosecutor in which she is editing the Russian state government's response to the MLAT. And she had filed documents in the U.S. court saying she had you know, knew nothing about the handling of the MLAT request. She was just a lawyer for Prevazon. She was lying. In fact, she had helped write it. And um, MSNBC reported this, I think, last April or May. The Southern District Office realizes that it's basically been defrauded by the, by the Russians in this case. And they relatively quickly, it's only eight or 10 months later, bring uh, a, an obstruction of justice case against Veselnitskaya. So that's the story. It does on its face have nothing to do with the fact that the other reason she was traveling to the United States on a regular basis was to peddle dirt on Hillary Clinton well, in the have, same time frame. Does it have nothing to do or could it end up connecting insofar as like now she's obviously she's wanted? Could she be then arrested or if they get hands on her, they could presumably force her or compel have, have a reason to compel her or means to compel her to tell what she knows about the Trump Tower meeting. I mean, she does. It does sound like she's in Russia. So I think it's it's incredibly unlikely. Right. But like, let's say she takes a trip to Spain. I'm just saying. I would imagine. You could put out a red notice right, on her. Would, that would be ironic. Yeah. I would imagine she would be sufficiently careful. Sure. If she made enough of a mistake that we could actually get her in U.S. custody, uh, that would have ramifications for the Mueller investigation. I think that's pretty unlikely. I do think, though, it is at least a little bit related in the sense that we now have federal prosecutors spelling out the connection between this woman and the Russian state apparatus with yes, a level of right. specificity, mm-hmm. saying we're prepared to prove this in court. And whenever you sort of take that piece and insert it into the Trump Tower meeting of, you know, Donald Trump Jr. is having a meeting, not just with some, you know, random woman discussing adoptions, but somebody who very, very clearly is an agent of the Russian government in a position to potentially make representations uh, on behalf of the government, make credible representations on behalf of the government. I do think, I don't think it's a, you know, game-changing bombshell, but I, I think it actually does strengthen the case for Well, that. you could see it, I think, even being used, in, frankly, in an impeachment proceeding insofar as if somebody wanted to say, look, we know that Donald Trump Jr. met with an agent of the Russian government because Southern District prosecutors have accused her of being such an agent and they have evidence to it. Yeah, well, and it, it reminds me, too, of the way in which we didn't really have a clear sense of how closely the Russian government itself was connected to the DNC hacks and so on. And that is something that has become clearer and clearer over the course of the last couple of years, and partly due to the investigatory work of the Mueller investigation, along with 
with other folks. And and so to me, it's also an endorsement of the value of the law enforcement work that's been going on here, that it's clarifying things that were murky about the ways in which the Russian government was operating with a lot of irons and a lot of fires, all of which were penetrating our political system. There's one other person this looks really bad sure. for, and that is Glenn Simpson. Why? So Glenn Simpson, of course, is the proprietor of the uh, Fusion GPS company that commissioned and ran, uh, you know, the Steele dossier uh, and did work for, uh, you know, on that. Uh, but at the same time, Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS were working for one Natalia Veselnitskaya investigating Bill Browder in the Prevazon Holdings case. And that is this case. Uh, and so... You know, no one has accused uh, Glenn of obstruction of justice in that case, but he does appear now to have been an investigator for a litigation enterprise on behalf of Veselnitskaya that like, really appears to be quite corrupt in retrospect. All right, let's talk about the other uh, kind of big piece of La Ferrousse news, which was that um, we now know more about a meeting, uh, a couple of meetings, but really one of key interest, I think, that Paul Manafort had with a man named Konstantin Kalimnik, an associate of his who the FBI believes is connected to Russian intelligence, uh, who Manafort used to call his Russian brain, sort of his explainer of all things Russia, in which – and Ben, maybe you'll enlighten us to this because I think there's been some last-minute reporting changes on this – in which they met during the campaign and Manafort – uh, is alleged to have shared polling data or maybe even internal Trump campaign polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik, who then presumably would be at least in a position to share it with Russians, but maybe he didn't share it with Russians in this case. Um, bring us up to speed on that. So uh, it is very hard to know what to make of this. And I do think people should be careful about jumping to conclusions here because what actually came out is not Mueller's allegations. It is Manafort's response to Mueller's allegations, which were themselves have still not come out. And so what Mueller thinks the, the what Mueller's theory of these contacts is is unclear. All we know is what Manafort's lawyers think of Mueller, what Mueller thinks of these contacts. And we have to add, by the way, that we know them because while they were blacked out in a document, the redactions were done in such a way that you could actually remove them after they released right. it. Uh, genius. <laughs> Technical genius. It you know how you spend all the time. You you have to Some put on your resume proficient in Microsoft Word. <laughs> that means something. All that said, it does appear that Manafort concedes that he A met with Konstantin Kalimnik, his Ukraine side uh, and former Russian intelligence-connected business partner in Madrid in the period of the transition. It also appears that he admits that he gave polling data from the Trump campaign to Kalimnik during the campaign itself in a fashion that was appears to have been passed on to 
uh, Ukrainian oligarchs. And he also appears to have discussed with Kalimnik a Ukraine peace plan. So that those are the factual disclosures that come out. They certainly arguably have a collusion-y feel to them, right? I mean, these are direct contacts between uh, somebody on the Trump, a new set of direct contacts between somebody on the Trump campaign, the chairman of it, and uh, Russian intelligence-connected figures. On the other hand, here's my note of caution. Manafort was deeply in debt to uh, Oleg Deripaska, and we've known for a long time that he had uh, meant to use his tenure at the Trump campaign to, as he put it, get whole. Uh, that is to leverage that position to correct his relationship with Deripaska and to you know figure out ways to make money. And so it is not at all clear to me that what Mueller's theory is, is that this is collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, as opposed to grifting by Paul Manafort and trying to leverage his position in the Trump campaign to cut himself as good a deal it's with- It's a different kind of collusion. Yeah, well, it's a, but it's a question, collusion between whom and whom, right? And for what end? And so I, I think we're just going to have to wait until Mueller has something to say about this before we really know uh, what to make of it. I agree with all of that. I do think that there are two insights to sort of be gleaned from it. And one is related to sort of Manafort giving up this polling, uh, what what is reported to be internal Trump polling numbers. And I do think it's significant that this is the first time we aren't just seeing the Trump campaign receiving information, we're actually seeing them producing information. Just the depth, the, on, the depth of the ongoing relationship. Now, maybe it's Manafort colluding for his own purposes, but I do think it's significant also think it's significant that Manafort must have produced those poll numbers for some reason. He must have thought that people actually needed them or 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 I presume right. it it's more like than not just the a, Ipsos poll. I mean, right. it's, it's and if it was something yeah. like, well, it was just a matter of personal curiosity. He then lies about it to Mueller's team. So I do think that there's a little bit of a question of, yes, questions. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But I, I think there's a lot of flags that there's something significant there. Well, and, and to that point, too, even if it is grifting, I mean, this is the campaign manager of the Republican nominee knowingly giving information. That yes, he but only for a very short time. <laughs> he, he was the coffee boy. Okay. I mean, it's like he, I mean, he could have plausibly, my point is just to amplify your point, is he absolutely plausibly could have imagined what this might be used for. Sure. I sure. mean, and there's no way in hell you're supposed to do that under any circumstance. But again, without saying a word in defense of the Trump campaign on this subject, we do know that Manafort had done things like promised private briefings on the campaign to Deripaska, you know, as a way of ingratiating himself. And that does not appear to have been a uh, a collusion effort. It appears to have been Manafort trying to deal with the fact that uh, the aluminum king of Siberia was really pissed off at him over 20 million missing dollars. And so, you know, whether this is Manafort being Manafort or Manafort being the collusion king of of, of Trump Tower, I think we just don't know at this point. Look, I, I agree we're talking about a potential spectrum of sort of, of explanations here. One is, uh, you know, it's active collusion. He's like reporting uh, back on how their work is going and giving them new information about where to target. The other end of that spectrum is Trump's campaign manager is meeting with 
individuals tied to the Russian government in foreign countries during the campaign. So none of the parts of the spectrum are uh, good or innocent explanations. I think it's worth noting. The other thing that I think that there is sort of insight to be gleaned, and, and that is in sort of the fact that they discuss this Ukrainian peace plan. Um, and that's because I think it starts to show the Russian interest here. And if you think about all the times that there's really substantial Russian outreach, it's always about sanctions. The Trump Tower meeting is about, you know, adoptions, which is code for the Magnitsky Act, which is code for lifting sanctions. The Flynn Kislyak phone call is about them lifting sanctions. The Ukrainian peace plan is about coming to a, a conclusion favorable to the Russians so that the United States will lift sanctions. And so I do think that we start to see Russia's substantive interest, not just in having, you know, sort of someone with pro-Putin instincts in the White House, you know, you can imagine all kinds of reasons why they would prefer Trump to Hillary Clinton, but actually that the Russians had an agenda here, a remarkably consistent agenda, and it's and it's hitting all kinds of, of sort of substantive substantive policy issues. And I do think you start to get concerned whenever you then try and trace it into actual administration policy and start to wonder, hey, where did some of these ideas originate? Trump clearly isn't just coming up with his, this stuff on his own. And just to bring it home, we should make sure listeners remember, when sanctions is code for Vladimir Putin's money, right? right? And that's it's why he money. cares about this. I want my money. And when you sanction people, I can't get my horses. money, right? So it, it all comes back to that. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Tammy, why don't you go first? Sure. So, Shane, you you mentioned uh, your former colleague and and my friend Jamal Khashoggi a few minutes ago. And um, this week marks 100 days since Jamal was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Tomorrow evening, um, there's going to be a bipartisan gathering on Capitol Hill uh, marking that uh, 100 days and highlighting the threats to press freedom, not only in Saudi Arabia, but around the world. It's uh, an event that is hosted by uh, the co-chairs of the Congressional Freedom of the Press Caucus. I didn't know that they had one, but I'm thrilled to know it. It's chaired by Adam Schiff of California and Steve Chabot of Ohio and Senator Mark Warner. Uh, and this event was put together by two friends of Jamal's, uh, Lawrence Wright, the former New Yorker writer, playwright, author, etc., and Ali Soufan, a former FBI agent and head of the Soufan Group. So if anyone, and I know some people have been concerned that this horrific crime was being forgotten and per- particularly forgotten in Congress, I don't think that's the case. And tomorrow will be another opportunity to highlight the importance of protecting free journalism. Great. Susan? So I have an object lesson. Um, It's sort of an old style object lesson in that it's just an article and a story that I think um, our listeners will be interested in that is like a little bit outside of our wheelhouse. And that's um, an article that appeared in the New York Times, I think, yesterday. Uh, It's called The El El Chapo Trial, How a Colombian IT Guy Helped U.S. Authorities Tank Down the Kingpin. Um, And it's the story about the IT guy that helps El Chapo set up this encrypted communication system who then 
works with the FBI to crack it. This is all coming out in court. It's like a completely wild and super interesting story about U.S. law enforcement and encryption and Mexican drug cartels. And it's one of those things that if the world wasn't on fire and the government wasn't shut down, um, we should all be talking about at length as just an interesting thing. But in the meantime, everyone go read this story. It sounds like a made-for-TV movie right. just waiting to happen, right? I think that like well, the movies have already – some of the movies have already been made. They're going to have to uh, – It sounds like the lesson two. is be nice to the IT guy. Seriously. Exactly. Oof. That's always the lesson. Yikes. <laughs> um, so my object – it's actually not new, but it's new to me. I just finished watching the show Bodyguard. Uh, which I don't know if you guys have seen this. But it's it's in... not the Whitney Houston Kevin no, Costner movie. No, it's not movie. The Bodyguard. It's just a Bodyguard. <laughs> it's a television show. Matt, do you watch it? Yeah. So basically this is a – remember how I always talked about like Fauda if Homecoming were – or if Homeland were good? Mm-hmm. This is like if Homeland were British and directed by Oliver Stone in his JFK phase. Oh, it man. is the most like wildly unrealistic conspiratorial like – Elements of the British government out to get and assassinate one another, and it is freaking great. I love that. <laughs> it was so much fun. You just have to let it go. People have heard me say this before. It's like I don't care if you're going to make a security theme show that it reflects reality. I just care that it's dramatically consistent. And this show is like bonkers, crazy, consistent every episode. Okay, but if you're going to make a crazy, insane security-themed show, yeah. it also needs eye candy. Um, well, White this, House Down, my friend. Has White it, House my Down, dear, in the form of Richard Madden, who is bodyguard. All right, Lord. <laughs> who some people would know better is um, Rob Stark, he of the Red Wedding. Sad ending. Um, Richard Madden, who won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Drama Series. Yep. And I have to say, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I love him. <laughs> I really do. But, like, okay, I'm just going to give you the other actors who are in that category. Jason Bateman in Ozark. Incredible if you watch that show. That's an incredible show. My God, he's good in that show. Billy Porter in Pose, which I didn't see. Matthew Reese in The Americans. Come on. Yeah. Which The Americans finally, finally, in its last year, won for Best Drama Maybe Series. that's what the Russians have been aiming for this <laughs> all this just time. Right? They just wanted The Americans to be recognized at the right. Golden Globes. And Stephen James in Homecoming, which I will talk about in a future podcast. I guess if you're not watching that, that show is nutty. So wacky. And so fun. Yeah. That's, that also might be another like deeply unrealistic, like paranoid. Like we're entering a Completely phase where a paranoid. lot of the security theme shows are like crazy paranoid. It's but like just the, go with it. Don't you think it's like the early 70s? It's like the parallax. Yes. And like Three Days of the Condor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And those are great. That's a great <laughs> they are time great for movies. movies. And yeah. So see <laughs> Bodyguard. It's terrific. And um, it's just really, really fun and completely unrealistic. And I loved every minute of it. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show, of which I have loved every minute as well. <laughs> and we too, oh, Shane. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website. <laughs> you really, really can. You really, really can. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps people find the podcast, and we appreciate it. Uh, the show was edited this week uh, and produced, as always, by Jen Patti Howell. Audio engineer was Matthew Kahn. Our music this week was by John Bolton and his new Michael Bolton cover band, <laughs> featuring such hits as Said We Were Leaving Syria, But I Lied, <laughs> How Can We Be Advisors When We Can't Be Friends, 
and when a man pays off a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Very good, Shane. It's going to be the best of this year, an early favorite. That might be the best of the entire episode, actually. (laughs) Sophia Yan is like, sign me up for the tour right now. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Don't stay shut down. 